The Question Lane. Solving problems through the process of questions and answers. The Question Lane is a podcast where the goal is to solve problems through the process of questions and answers. Today's guest is an author and senior scholar at the Institute of Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. As a scholar, he directs the program of Inequality and Common Good. Today's series of questions and answers will be centered on Area 1, Economics, and Area 6, Politics, specifically his book, Born on Third Base, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Bringing Wealth Home, and Committing to the Common Good. Our guest today is Chuck Collins. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so as we talked about earlier, Chuck would work, right? Yes. Okay perfect. I call you Alonso. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I just want to okay, make sure yeah. we're right on names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the book, the book has a lot of constructive analysis and cites a lot of ways wealth is used to maintain and expand inequality. Uh, there were, however, some points that made me really think about uh, some of the logic that was espoused in the book. So hopefully today we could learn uh, you know, what you meant by what you wrote through today's discussion. So just to get into some background, is there anything that you want us to know about you or say before we get started? Uh, no, I, I welcome any questions and critical reflections on, on that. I look forward to our conversation. Always good to hear. Uh, for those who are uh, unfamiliar with you, are you a white man? I am a white man of Irish German heritage, and um, the, the the German side of my family uh, came from the kind of Catholic southern part of Germany, and was very into creating their own sausages. So that was that's a part of my heritage. Okay, uh, so as a white male, do you have any pushback that usually comes with the viewpoint that you talk about? in terms of inequality? Yes. Uh, I mean, I would say a, quite a bit of pushback because my perspective is, um, you know, there are sort of deep system advantages that are multi-generation that go back multiple generations. Um, so, for instance, I would argue um, the current present-day racial wealth divide uh, is the result of sort of white advantage, white supremacy in wealth building going back, you know, centuries. And that uh, people like myself, I call born on third base, uh, who have all this inherited multi-generational advantage have a disproportionate responsibility to try to fix and reverse some of those trends. So sometimes people find uh, take take that kind of um, perspective personally, but to me, it's not. It's just the way the systems have worked. It's not whether people are good or bad, or you know, today moral actors or not. It's just the it's just the facts of the way the system works has and has worked. Understood. So just to com- provide some context here, what are the parameters that allow someone to be classified as being a part of the one percent? Well, today, to be in the 1% is usually uh, income over, say, $350,000 annual income uh, or wealth. 
uh, probably over um, you know 900,000. Um, and sometimes people have they're in the 1% in terms of wealth, but not income, or vice versa. Um, but that's one cutoff. And in a way, where I think a lot of the power resides now uh, is in the top one-tenth of 1%. And that's a group where your income starts at about $3 million and wealth over $25 million. Uh, and that's the group that has seen the lion's share of of income and wealth gains in the last 10 years since the uh, the economic meltdown. Almost all the growth in income of wealth has gone up to that tippy-toppy one-tenth of 1%. Mm. So currently, are you in the 1%? I am not um, because I, I was born in the 1%. Uh, I grew up in a family that's part of that sort of multi-generational wealth holding, uh, but I made a decision uh, half my life ago to give away uh, the inheritance that I received and, and uh, quite a bit of the claims of uh, future inheritances. So um, uh, by my own actions, I'm no longer technically in the top 1%. Although, to be honest, I feel like that is the culture, the upbringing, uh, the imprint uh, that I grew up with. So uh, it wouldn't be accurate to say I'm currently in the 1%, but I definitely grew up in a 1% family. Mm. Words are something that I like to focus on in their meanings and the context in which they're used. So words like unaware, unintentional, and ignorant were often used to describe the behavior of the wealthy throughout the book. Are these words interchangeable synonyms, or do they have different meanings as you use them? Well, I think um, I, 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 a lot of people who are in maybe grew up in my circumstances, uh, and, 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 and this would be true generally of sort of white advantage, it's just sort of hardwired into your life, and if you don't really know people who grew up in very different circumstances, if you haven't really gotten to know other people's stories, if you haven't really read history and paid attention to sort of how advantage works in our society, um, you could go through life um, pretty, pretty insulated, or I would describe it as living in a bubble, uh, a bubble of advantage, of privilege. Um, so again, it's not necessarily malintentional, but it is a function of the sort of protective bubble that a lot of wealthy and advantaged people grow up in. Um, so I would, I guess if I use the word unintelligent, maybe that was a little harsh, but that's where I think when people, you know, willingly uh, ignore the evidence, uh, that's, a, that's a different problem. But for a lot of people, it's just, this is the air they breathe. Um, well, there, there's, a, there's a few, well, more than a few examples that I will, I will reference later on in the conversation, but I always like to think about what it means to say unaware or unintentional or ignorant when it comes to some of these wealth disparities that we experience throughout the country. And uh, some of the examples, I appreciate some of the examples that you provided because they were very clear and very specific about how uh, the wealthy use their advantage to further their expansion of wealth. So um, we'll get into that a little bit later. 
inequality, that's a word that's often used. What do you mean when you use the word inequality within the context of your book? I think of inequality as the um, uh, economic inequality and kind of the unequal opportunities of the the inequality of income, wages, wealth, opportunity, and agency. Um, And, you know, people talk about poverty, and poverty is relative within different societies around the world. Um, but I, when, I, when we talk about inequality, we're talking really about the, the whole picture, the gap. So we're also talking about the concentration of wealth at the top. And um, I, I think sometimes when the conversation stays focused on poverty, it's missing an important part of the whole picture. So that's why I think it's useful to, to, to talk about inequality um, as the condition the, that it is the gap itself is a, is a problem. So in terms of economic inequality, would a maldistribution of resources, which results in incorrect treatment, be a more succinct way of describing inequality, or am I lacking uh, some components? Nope. No, that's a, that's a, a very elegant uh, definition. Okay, and... Uh, the last definition that I want to focus on is racism. That's a word that's often used. Uh, what do you mean when you use racism within the context of your book? Well, I think of it um, as part of the, the systemic advantage to that has been uh, given to people with low low melanin. You know, so those of us who were born melanin deficient, white skinned, um, had all kinds of systemic and structural advantages assigned or allocated to us. Um, so, you know, race is a social construct. Uh, we are all more, much more alike than we're different. But, you know, as I understand, particularly in a U.S. context, uh, race became a, um, you know, a, a different advantages were conferred. Uh, you know, for instance, White indentured servants came to this country as well and worked in indentured servitude, uh, but they, because of their skin, low melanin content, were able to pay off their own, uh, you know, could stop being permanently enslaved or indentured, um, whereas that right was not given to people with high melanin content. So, you know, I think of, again, uh, racism as the sort of systemic conferral of advantage on light-skinned, white-skinned people. Oftentimes when I think about racism, uh, especially earlier on in my life, I was a little confused about what an accurate definition would be because I would think about poor white people or I would think about non-white people who are not black but also have um, uh, situations where they deal with mistreatment. And uh, I came across a definition about racism, and I thought it was pretty accurate, and I want to see what you have to say about it. So racism is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in a known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think that such a system exists, and do you think that definition is accurate? I think that's a good definition that, that kind of points to the 
the deep systemic nature of it. And that's not to say that uh, people with that kind of white, white skin advantage don't also mistreat or subjugate people who are also white. That also exists. But in terms of racism, that's a, that is, a, I think, a, a powerful and accurate description of the systemic nature of the domination. And just to be clear, I understand that there are white people who experience this type of mistreatment to some degree, and that could be seen in the wealth gap where uh, the, the one-tenth of one percent is acquiring so much wealth that it leads to a lot of different problems. But when I talk about this definition between white people and non-white people, I'm really referring to the uh, power dynamic that is very skewed in the favor of white people over non-white people in general. So that's the core of the definition that I referenced. Um, so going to jump into the book here. So in Chapter 2, you spoke about young professionals paying their mortgages and forgetting that they receive financial help from their parents and grandparents for their house and tuition. In general, are these people white or are they non-white? Uh, well, there's a certain amount of, in our culture overall, a focus on, on the individual achievement. And we kind of, um, there's a certain amount of amnesia uh, that, you know, accompanies disclosing, confessing, owning up to the various advantages. So I would say that disproportionately, that's those are white people who, who don't recognize the systemic advantages, the power advantages, and the way in which wealth advantage works over generations. And people will sort of take that for granted, forget it, leave it off the list of factors that contributed to their own success. So I see that all the time. I think it's probably in, in U.S. culture in particular where there's a fair amount of shame attached to help, getting help, whether it's help from a family, help from government. Uh, it's probably a cultural thing to leave those details out. So you might find, you know, uh, people of color also who've had inherited advantage who don't disclose that as part of their, their journey. So I think there's a larger cultural issue there, but for the purposes of our discussion, there's a huge amount of what I would call white amnesia when it comes to understanding the, the forces that contribute to an individual's wealth and opportunity that have nothing to do with themselves. And these type of, this version of help when it comes to helping, helping with the mortgage and helping with tuition, is that uh, fall under this, the, the concept of in vivo wealth transfers? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that, um, you know, we all should unpack is how uh, wealth transfers happen, how families help their children, and how government helps people too. Um, you use the word inter vivo, during life. Uh, so let's say I help my uh, daughter buy a car, and, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, the, it's getting harder and harder, and the cost of insurance is much higher now than it was when I was in my 20s trying to buy a car. There's all these ways, hundreds of ways in which parents help their kids. And it isn't necessarily like in my case where I inherited a substantial amount of money it can be small, it can be, 
oh, let me help you with uh, that, that um, rent, first month's rent deposit, or let me help you uh, purchase a car, or uh, I'll help you with the down payment on a house. Um, now, in some parts of the country, that could be $5,000 or, or you know, not vast wealth, but it makes a huge difference between whether someone gets on the wealth building train, if you will, or is denied that opportunity. And again, white families have substantially more wealth, and they also pass on, are in a position to pass on more wealth to their children. And that creates this kind of um, unlevel playing field or this, this, this flow of wealth perpetuates sort of systemic inequalities. Uh, you talked about the trailer park store, the trailer park story where you decided to uh, help these tenants to purchase this mobile home park. Can you briefly explain that story and why you were so motivated to do that? Yeah, um, and, and remind me where you're sitting this morning, where in the country you are. Florida. Florida, yeah. Okay, so... Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm in the in the Boston area, so I'm in the Northeast. But um, all over, you know, Florida and Northeast, there are these mobile home parks that are owned by absentee landlords, where people maybe own the home, they own their mobile home, but they don't own the land underneath their home. And in the Northeast, we worked in my 20s. My job was to work with tenants in these mobile home parks to form corporations, cooperatives, to buy and own their parks. And uh, the group that I worked with in my 20s has now done over 600 resident-owned mobile home parks in f all over the United States, including Florida and, and the, you know, mostly rural areas. And, uh, and so that was my job. And, and, and at one point, I was kind of doing the – now, I was 26 years old, so I'm young – and again, you know my background. I grew up in a relatively, uh, you know, affluent bubble of wealth. But here I am working, and I'm, 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 I'm learning everybody's, like, intimate personal financial information, how much savings they have, what their incomes are, what they can afford toward, to pay toward the purchase of the park. And in one mobile home park I was working in, you know, I could tell – this group did not have, the group of 30 residents did not have the savings or capacity to be able to buy their park and that they were not going to be able to pull that off. And at that moment, I thought, well, maybe I should just anonymously write a check because that could make a huge difference, you know, in their lives. And I almost did it, except that this particular group kind of dug deep. It didn't occur to me that the people who had maybe more than they needed would lend that to the rest of the community so that they could buy the park and own it themselves. And so I just sat back and watched uh, a group dig deep and, and be able to pull off uh, in, in part because of their sense of solidarity with one another uh, to be able to pull off the resident ownership of their park. So that really, it sort of reminded me, like I grew up in a community where people were you know, generous and charitable, but they, they weren't like all in to help each other and that that actually happens in lots of places in the, in the world.
So did this particular event in your life, did this motivate you directly to give away your wealth, or was it a combination of other factors? Well, I think as I was in my early 20s, I just got a much better picture of the world, uh, of how Advantage works, and I just realized, you know, I didn't really want to have um, this wealth. Uh, I, I had, you know, already enormous benefits from it. Uh, I was able to go to college without going into debt. Um, I'm white. I'm male. Uh, I got a certain kind of skills training. I got training around money and how money works. I mean, there's so much other forms of advantage. And on top of that, I had, you know, what essentially, to, you know, if I'd held on to it, it would be like six or seven million dollars today. So I just made. I wasn't. I was impressed by this mobile home park community because of that sense of reciprocity and solidarity among the people. And that I was hungry for that. I really just felt like, wow, I want to be part of a community that, where people are all in for each other. And, uh, and I recognized that having the money in my name was a barrier to my having that experience. So that, that was one of the things that motivated me to, to pass the wealth along. And in a book, you said that you transferred the wealth to four grant-making foundations. What what were the foundations that you transferred the money to? Yeah, they were um, they were foundations uh, around the United States that focused on what uh, could call change, not charity. They were not like traditional philanthropies. They were really trying to focus on systemic change. Um, one was called the Haymarket People's Fund, working in New England. One was called the Fund for Southern Communities, which focused on the southeastern states, uh, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, funding grassroots organizing. Uh, there was a national fund led by women of color working on uh, sort of issues of inequality and, and uh, exclusion. And then there was another fund called the Peace Development Fund that was working on issues of broadly defined issues of peace, peace at the community level, et cetera. So uh, that, you know, um, I didn't feel like I wanted to sit around and think about each small grant. I instead sort of gave to endow those four foundations so that they could do ongoing giving um, that I thought would really make a difference. But I didn't want to play God and micromanage where the, where the money went. Mm, understood. The, tri the the mobile home park would have been a good place to park some of that money, I think. But uh, yeah, and and actually, some of that money was loaned to a loan fund that provided zero interest loans to those kind of resident buyouts. So uh, mm. that money continues to work uh, in a revolving loan fund to help mobile home park residents and tenants generally buy their buildings. Hmm. A concept you talked about that I found interesting was you said that uh, powerful, um, powerful tactics of active love. What does that mean exactly? Well, you know, I, I, I think part of um, where I'm coming from is uh, recognizing that there are, there are powerful people who use their wealth and power 
to rig the rules of the economy to get more wealth and power, and uh, that we should do everything to organize our communities and defend ourselves from those individuals. And uh, they're a small but powerful organized segment, you know, and I think of like the Koch brothers, you know, here's, you know, two brothers who've inherited, you know, our third generation uh, beneficiaries of a company that, you know, does energy and fossil fuel extraction, that kind of thing. And they have no shame in using their wealth and power to weaken government, to elect conservatives, to deny others' rights, etc. But they, I, I believe they are kind of a minority, that there are a lot of people, and this is, again, just my life experience, there's a lot of people like me who grew up in wealthy background <clears throat> who are mostly just disconnected. They don't understand how the system works. They don't understand the legacy of white supremacy and how wealth inequality builds over time. And if they did understand it, they would act differently. And they would also move their money, share their wealth, um, and actively work for systemic change. So how do we engage those people? And that's where I think uh, tactics of shame and attack and degrading people or just assuming that all wealthy people are evil or are all on the same side of greed. That's where I guess I'm making the point there are potential allies. There are people that we shouldn't give up on, that we should be working, and that they would be engaged through active love. And that could be active nonviolent direct action. That could be witnesses. That could be just making friends with people and engaging them in a thoughtful respectful way. Um, so in a, in a nutshell, my message is uh, there are potential allies among the richest 1% out there. And one way to think about engaging them is to invite them home. Come home to the community. Come home to uh, a neighborhood, a city, a, a larger community, and bring your wealth home and put it to work building a fair and equitable society. And uh, not out of a sense of charity. My, I'm not appealing to people to just be charitable. I'm saying this is actually in the deep self-interest for these people to rejoin humanity, um, to you know, repair the broken systems and you know, live in a more equitable society. So that's, that's where that, that idea of active and engaged love comes from. So, so to be clear, who is more confused about racism and how it works and the wealth gap? Is it people who are already wealthy and white, or is it just the non-white people who are in the 99%? Well, my experience is people of color have a much clear, visceral understanding of the systemic nature of inequality. Um, and there are, uh, so I, I guess I would, uh, you know, in answer to your question, I'd say, yeah, we're, we're, we're part, we're, I feel like part of my work as somebody who grew up in that circumstances, part of my work is to engage affluent white people, wealthy white people to 
you know, under, you know, to peel back the, the socialization, peel back the mythologies and, and narratives that we've been fed our whole life. Uh, one of them, I call it the narrative of deservedness, which is, hey, you, you are, everyone is where they deserve to be. That little mythology is, you know, very operative among advantaged people. They're like, oh, yeah, our family, we're from a good family. Our family worked hard for our, you know, we started a business and we worked in, you know, my great-grandfather did this. And, you know, you hear that kind of, that sort of sense of deservedness and merit. And part of my work is to help people say, yeah, you know, what individuals do matters, but let's look at how advantage works over generation um, and, and engage and organize uh, wealthy white people to shift their resources and, and shift their focus and, 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 and break and disrupt these myths, myths of deservedness that kind of hold the whole system in place. So not only do we want to change the rules of the economy, uh, not only do we want to work for actual reparations, um, but we also need to disrupt the stories that justify the inequality. And that's something that I think that's a role for people with advantage is to engage other people with advantage to demystify and disrupt the stories that justify their wealth, their ill-gotten wealth. Mm. Although I understand what you're saying, what I think about oftentimes when it comes to understanding the type of system that we're in as it relates to the racial and wealth hierarchy, I look at how do people that are non-white demonstrate how could it be measured that they understand that they're in a system of incorrect treatment and how do they actually put forth efforts to show that I understand the system that I am in and how do they solve problems. And if we look at pretty much all measures of uh, people activity, whether it be educational attainment, the wealth gap, uh, arrest rates, conviction rates, it doesn't really show that non-white people, myself included, are actually less confused about racism and are placed within the system. Do you think that's an accurate conclusion or am I incorrect? Well, I think you 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 probably have more insight into that than me. I do think we live in a society where the main message is it's all about what you do as an individual and that your circumstances of your upbringing and your whatever your parents and grandparents' circumstances don't matter. And there's this sort of mythology in the American dream, which is, hey, anyone can advance to the commanding heights of wealth and power in the society if they work hard and apply themselves. And to me, that is that myth of deservedness or myth of meritocracy. And I've no, you know, I, I don't have any doubt that that has infected pretty much the society as a whole and people internalize that. So even though we live in a caste, a racial caste society, there are, I'm sure, many people of color walking around saying, hey, it's all up to me. What's the matter with me? Why can't I get to 
this place economically because as a society we discourage people from looking at systems and history and you know that everybody's getting this pep talk all the time hey you can overcome that circumstance if you just apply yourself like that's we're all being told that right so I think you know it is hard to see how systems work and I, I and as a white person part of I, I feel like well my job is to say let me tell you the invisible uh, secrets about how advantage works you know going back generations and you know the past is present and the inequalities and uh, barriers of the past are present today and they now we know that they actually uh, through epigenetics sometimes that they're imprinted in our genes uh, the legacy of trauma and inequality and poverty can affect people for multi-generations we're just learning these things so this sort of pep talk that that you know American dream pep talk like hey anybody can be and 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 if you're poor it's a reflection on your lack of deservedness and if you're rich it's because you deserve to be there that is powerful powerful mythology and it's really hard for all of us to get outside of that yeah, and that's kind of yeah yeah yes it does I, I just wanted to be clear in terms of I understand that you know myself included I was a first-generation college student and eventually went into entrepreneurship endeavors but I am in no way under the illusion that uh, from a macro perspective that people that are non-white specifically black have been subjected to all kinds of atrocities and not having access to uh, the Homestead Act and wealth building opportunities such as, homes, uh, such as home ownership led us to be in this type of position, let alone slavery. But to talk about the, deserve, the deservedness aspect that you talked about, um, there was a speech that you gave to some veterans that you mentioned in your book uh, on the topics of race, the mythology of deservedness, and how it takes twists and turns. Uh, but you said that you decided to not discuss reparations because it wasn't the place. Can you explain why you decided to not do that within that context? Well, I think I was just trying to be honest that here I was in this room with people who, I mean, I did talk about race, actually. I talked about the legacy of the GI Bill because here was a group of 150 white veterans who all benefited from public government investments after World War II that made it possible for them to buy homes, made it possible for them to go to college without debt, provided business, small business loans and grants, and, and they in turn got on what I would call the wealth building train, uh, and they were able to help their children and grandchildren. And so they were, they and, and, and uh, part of my work in that space was to challenge the idea that, or, or just remind people of the history. You know, a lot of uh, people of color Blacks, Latinos, First Nations, Native Americans also fought in World War II, but did not receive 
either because of overt discrimination or de jure discrimination uh, access to those benefits. Um, and I would say in that moment, I, I, I pushed there, but my own coward, cowardliness probably kept me from pushing further or maybe I didn't fully, I didn't fully articulate the case for a government-funded reparations to repair that. So that was more, more my admission that I, uh, even, in, even as a white person in a group of 150 white military veterans, was afraid to um, push that conversation as far as maybe today I would, but five, six years ago I didn't. What, what was their response when you told them that a lot of non-white troops didn't have access to the GI Bill, that they were able to build wealth upon? What was their response? Well, I remember one, one older, you know, these were all men in their 70s, 80s, 90s, one guy said, don't play the race card, you know, like that. But then two of their, three of the other veterans said, shut up and let the man talk. <laughs> so, so I think my, my experience actually was people, people on some level knew that history and uh, were living kind of, but, but, but didn't really fully understand the, the, the deeply, for instance, the mortgage lending part, which, you know, you, we, don't hate, we, we don't have to go back centuries. We're, we're talking about 1949, 1952. People, white people got heavily subsidized government mortgages. Uh, I have an uncle, Alonzo, in Ohio, who, who bought his farm in 1950 with a 1% 35-year fixed-rate mortgage. You could buy a lot of farm. Think about what today, what people with a 35-year 1% fixed-rate mortgage, you could purchase a farm, you could purchase a house with a fairly low monthly payment. And that's exactly, that was the only way this relative of mine, who was not from the wealthy part of my family, was from my mother's side of the family, was able to purchase a farm that has provided multi-generational benefits. Um, so that, that's, to me, that's, you know, getting white people to understand how, how they got government-funded help and how that help was not available to everybody. In fact, you know, millions of people were excluded from that form of help. And uh, that's where, you know, White people need to engage with one another about this forgotten history of how advantage has worked in our families. And a lot of people don't even tell their children these stories. Like, I, I, I remember talking to people who clearly their parent, their father, was a veteran in World War II, probably went to college, probably bought their first family home with a government-subsidized veteran's mortgage, but never talked about it, never, never confessed that oh. These were government programs that made this possible. It wasn't just the sweat of my own brow. Well, I, I, I agree that they might not know the intricacies of how loans were dispersed and they might not know exactly um, the amount of money that might, might have been invested in black communities, but I'm pretty sure they knew that 
<laughs> black people didn't get the mortgages that they had available to them because they were excluded from living around them. They were redlined, so I'm pretty sure uh, they were not that confused, if you ask me. But uh, speaking yeah, of reparations, yeah, yeah. speaking of reparations, you mentioned uh, this is chapter 12, where you said that you mentioned that you understand the material facts in reference to reparations, but question how to disperse the money to whom it should go and the response of white people. Have you come to any conclusions since you wrote the book about reparations? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think I've I've come a little ways along, which is I believe there should be a commission, just like, uh, and we finally had a congressional hearing uh, two months ago on creating a commission to look at the legacy of slavery, and and I believe that uh, people of African heritage should should be in charge of that and should uh, propose a program that people think is going to, you know, address both the individual and the systemic uh, inequities. Um, and I'm happy to sort of be part of the educating white Americans about why that is not only a good idea, but why that will move us as a society forward. And that, uh, you know, as Tennessee Coates says, we're you know, white America is in a stage of arrested development. If we can't face the history and face the, um, you know, structural inequalities that we're responsible for, uh, we're just going to be living a lie. And uh, it's part of our own journey and, you know, to, to engage around this. So um, I, it's not up to me, I don't think, to decide what's the, what's the, the program um, but my job is to support the leadership of other people who are going to push, you know, design a program of reparations. You know, I have looked at what did people do in Germany after World War II, uh, what was done around uh, Japanese Americans and internment, and the failure of our country to fully fund a meaningful reparations that was both individual cash grants as well as sort of the education and historical aspects of reparations, you know. So I think that there should be things that help individuals and there should be things that sort of help the society as a whole never forget the sort of history and, you know, the, how that's part of our, our national DNA, if you will. And that, that you know, those, those things I think are all part of a reparations program. So it sounds like to me that you're willing to use empathy and active love to explain the importance of reparations when it comes to dealing with white people who might have anger about uh, black people receiving this type of compensatory action. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I, I mean, I basically do that every day, and it feels... It's a, and I find, for you know, part of what's challenging in the current moment is just how 40 years of economic inequality, how the, you know, the economy now is is so skewed that there are all these uh, white people who are also left behind, who are feeling economically pain, who are you know 
anesthetizing themselves with opioids and that sort of thing. And so when people hear about reparations, they're like, hey, wait a second, you know, I didn't, my family didn't own any slaves and our family's economically in pain. So part of, part of it is to understand, okay, let's, you know, as a white person, I need to listen to that pain and acknowledge the truth in that experience. And we should do things as an overall society to deal with the ways in which our society is now pulling apart and how that's affecting everyone. And on top of that, we need to, through reparations and and other forms of restitution, deal with the multi-century legacy of the African slave trade and Jim Crow and everything that's happened since then. So it's sort of like getting people to see like, yes, there's, there is some systemic economic challenges that white people are facing. We need to address that. And we need to address this historic, uh, you know, role of white supremacy and wealth building and opportunity and, and just, uh, so that's part of the, part of the work, I think is engaging people who have a hard time hearing about reparations because of their own pain and speaking to that and addressing that as well as the, 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 the legacy of racism. Uh, economist Larry Neal, he's a, prof- a professor emeritus of economics at the University of Illinois. He has research indicating that between the years of 1620 and 1840, uh, minus the cost of maintenance, which would be medical, food, and housing, that descendants of slaves in America were owed about $1.4 trillion dollars and using an interest rate of about 5%, today that would be about $8.4 trillion just in lost wages. And that's not accounting for black codes, the loss of businesses and lands, convict leasing, sharecropping, uh, not having access to the GI Bill, Homestead Act, etc. Do you think that that would be an accurate estimate, estimate for how much... Uh, and reparations people that are classified as black would be um, entitled to receiving to compensate for slavery? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like it's in the right zone. You know, I mean, if we're talking about over four, you know, 400 years, uh, we're, we're looking at huge amounts of social and societal wealth built with unpaid, uncompensated labor. And then as you pointed out, you know, the, the pogroms, the destruction of black business districts, uh, you know, separate and un, un, unequal, even the, the ongoing legacy of the mortgage scams, you know, and, and discrimination and lending. Uh, we're, I'm, I'm sure we're, we're north of $10 trillion. Uh, in a wealthy society, that may seem just fantastic and, and a, a, an unthinkable amount of money. But in fact, there is so much wealth in our society and a huge, you know, tens of trillions of dollars held by the wealthiest 1% in our society, some of which is hidden, some of which is masked and hiding in trusts and other forms. But there's huge amounts of wealth uh, that should be taxed and redistributed and invested in this kind of reparations program. Um, and, 
you know, over a 15, 20 year period. That's a lot of wealth over a shorter term period. But if you, th if you think, okay, we're, you know, the German reparations for World War II is still being paid out, is still providing opportunities for the grandchildren of people who were affected by the Holocaust. Um, so I think we should take a longer view on how reparations investments, if you will, payouts uh, are, are, are done. But it, it doesn't, I don't really blink at that. I, I think that's a credible estimate. So when we, when we look at Democratic politicians, for example, like Cory Booker, who has been kind of undecided on reparations, and we look at Kamala Harris, who has said she's not going to do reparations definitively. And when we talk about Elizabeth Warren, who addresses redlining and has a program for that, but doesn't really commit to doing anything specific in terms of reparations, and we have Bernie Sanders, who already said that he's against reparations, how do, how do we, as non-white people, use active love and empathy towards people who have already dismissed the importance or even the necessity to have reparations enacted to help uh, with this wealth gap and all of the mistreatment that non-white people have been subjected to. I think we just keep keep on with the with the organizing and the message and the um, electing more and more people who understand and get that. Um, I mean, I remember what John Conyers. I grew up in Michigan. You know, John Conyers in 1989 introduced HR 40 to create a study commission. There was no hearing until for the this year. Um, I think the discussion and debate has come a long way just in in the last couple of years, thanks to organized social movements, Black Lives Matter, and Cobra, and groups like that that have just kind of been beating the drum and making the argument. And uh, I think there are more and more white people who are kind of learning their history, learning the you know the different ways in which we can advance it. So we, you know, my experience is in the last year the conversation about reparations has taken a huge leap forward and that I, I think it's going to continue to. I think, you know, we're as a society kind of awakening, uh, I could speak to more white people are sort of waking up and engaging with one another around this. So, um, you know, I think uh, you, I'm sure you have more better ideas than I do just about sort of what, your question around what does it look like to do active love and engagement, but um, I think it's it's keep on with the struggle. Well, you know, at, you spoke about the you, you spoke about uh, the conversation about reparations. Uh, what was the last month or the month before? Just in the last, yeah. Well, in the last year, yeah. I think it's it's come. I think partly the reparations uh, hearing. I, I don't remember exactly oh, when it was. Yes. I think it was like oh, a, yes. Yeah, the hearing was uh, the hearing was in the last few months, right? That's right. And uh, yeah, Danny Glover. It was um, uh, Shirley Jackson Lee, uh, Congresswoman, has taken over 
being the lead sponsor. There was the first hearing on that. And, uh, and I had friends, uh, there's a filmmaker named Katrina Brown whose family uh, benefited uh, by their shipping industry in the slave trade. She testified at that hearing. So there were white people who benefited from the slave trade who were um, part of those hearings along with others testifying. I think um, like Professor, Professor Neal talking about the cost. So that was, that was encouraging to me that here's a bill that's been introduced since 1989 and finally has its first hearing, has presidential candidates that endorse it um, or are being pushed to endorse it. Um, things have, things have uh, progressed in a uh, you know, long overdue but, but uh, moving in the right direction way. Yeah, I have, to, I have to look into that and see if I can find a transcript and get some more specifics on it. But, you know, when I think about a hearing about reparations, it would make sense to have people like Dr. Sandy Darity or Dark Hamilton or Antonio Moore or... Uh, exactly. Or maybe you to talk about uh, the importance of why it's uh, a, a necessity for, you know, black people to get this in this type of wealth calcification uh, era where, as you wrote in the book about Thomas Piketty, spoke about how this is one of the most concentrated um, eras in this world where wealth is being funneled to the top at, at an exponential rate. Uh, um, so the last topic I want to talk about here is uh, education. So... I saw an interesting story in your book where you talked about um, these education galas, not galas, but uh, celebrations, the Roaring Twenties and the casino uh, incident. Can you talk about these two uh, fundraisers and how uh, they use their funds and their wealth to be able to not pay uh, and contribute to the public educational system in Massachusetts? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. So um, part of what I, I tried to do in Born on Third Basis, you know, people often say, well, isn't charity the answer and philanthropy and creating foundations and nonprofit giving to nonprofits? Isn't that the solution? Um, and part of what I was pointing out is the ways in which the charitable sector um, and philanthropy sometimes worsen the economic divide. Um, so, you know, in Massachusetts, uh, you know, most many school systems are supported by local property taxes, which reinforces, you know, the sort of economic apartheid, racial and economic apartheid systems in terms of public education. You have cities that have low tax bases, towns that have uh, lower income people and they don't have the same property tax base as affluent communities. So in Massachusetts, that our state found that that's unconstitutional and now has a formula where we tax, you know, the, the high incomes and wealth of the whole, all the residents of the state of Massachusetts and we give money to school districts not based on, you know, the property tax values but on you know, there's more money coming into cities and towns that don't that have lower property tax. So, what do wealthy people do? They give money to a charitable found 
foundation that funds public education in affluent towns. So they're taking a tax, they're getting a tax deductible donation to fund things that enhance public education for the kids in their town, but sort of do an end run around our state education funding formula, if you will. So, so my point there was that uh, here, you know, here are these wealthy individuals from the town of Weston, which is you know one of the wealthiest towns in our state, having a charitable gala, uh, you know, and they're and they're 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 acting out. They're doing like a Roaring Twenties night. So think of like the Great Gatsby and all these white people dressed up as flappers, and you know, again, it's it's like clearly just oblivious to the history um, and raising all this money that will just go to help their kids and not kids in other communities. So um, to me, it was just a, a, a powerful example of how charity can worsen gaps. And in, in some states like California, almost all the wealthy school districts have these charitable foundations and people not only pay their property taxes to have these really good schools, but then they give additional money to a foundation that makes the schools even better. And it just worsens the gap and worsens the opportunity gap. So do you think these people are confused about how their wealth is creating these type of gaps? Or is this a real, real devious way of keeping their wealth and expanding it? A good question, Alonzo. It's probably a little of both, meaning that I think uh, there are clearly people who are have a sort of defensive, protective, uh, privilege preservation mentality. But I think if I went, went around and interviewed everybody there and said, uh, you know, all, they're probably just thinking, oh, well, we're just helping our kids. Now, that's a that's a fascinating historically. <laughs> We should interrogate that idea. We're just helping our kids. What does that mean? <laughs> it means we're helping our our white privileged kids. Um, so, so yeah. There to me, there's both. It you know, it's sort of the the way in which silence is devious, <laughs> way inaction or not thinking clear up, up and and being ahistorical is devious and. Uh, <laughs> that's a subject for a really good conversation just about the nature of evil you know like Hannah Arendt said you know the banality of evil evil isn't like hey I hate you and I want to take what's yours it's often not thinking it doesn't show up as red flash anger it shows up as I'm not even thinking about you and I think that is the most maybe that is the, an insidious form of evil it's benign neglect, and when yeah. you when you when you execute those type of uh, actions, that's more that has more of a lasting effect than you know someone being uh, violent and yelling. Because violence and yelling, you could kind of curve and prepare for someone who is overt with their racism or their use of funds to help propel their kids into positions that most kids were not able to be in that position, but it's the more refined 
uh, you know, shifting funds from uh, personal funds into these charities and creating these type of highly funded public schools, but they only benefit kids in your neighborhood. Exactly. I think that's a I think that's definitely a way of someone being not just someone, but just how wealth is practiced in a more devious way, a deceptive way. Yeah. I mean I I feel like part of the work in in a in a white community where people are liberal and think and thinking, hey, you know, I'm 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 not a member of the Klan or I'm not overtly being racist is to just understand how, you know, white supremacy and white fragility work together to just kind of, you know, it's, it's uh, the power of privilege is just to not have to think about other people, you know, whether it's class or race privilege, that seems to be part of the, the, the dynamic. And the part of the work is to say, yeah, these are, this is how systems work. You're just, you're just going along doing what everyone else is doing and you're reinforcing a system of accumulating advantage for white people and accumulating disadvantage for everybody else. And you're cooperating with it, colluding with it, enabling it, and by not resisting it, you're just allowing it to exist. And that is a big piece of the work for you know, it, even in, it, especially in white liberal communities where everybody's like, hey, we're just good people, right? Uh, that's, that's a huge part of what we're, what we're up against. Hmm. Colluding, that is the word of the century. <laughs> Colluding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, do you have uh, any more research or any type of books that you would suggest on this topic about inequality? Well, I would um, invite people to visit, uh, I co-edit a website called inequality.org. <clears throat> and uh, the last three years, we've, been, we've done a number of studies on the racial wealth divide. Uh, we just did a study on 10 solutions to the racial wealth divide, uh, co-authored by Derek Hamilton and Deidre Kasante Mohammed, who's somebody I've worked with for 25 years. And... Um, so we, we have more up-to-date data, and, and, and if I were to lift up one of the facts that I sort of bring out to the world and is, um, is this, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about the concentration of wealth, and what I would even further de describe is the concentration of white wealth and power, but also the way that the growing number of households that have zero or negative wealth that, that are underwater or have very little to fall back on. And that is a really important, under, to understand the racial wealth divide, how that is a form of the past showing up in the present, uh, and that that cannot be explained by simple explanations of deservedness. So I would invite your listeners to check out inequality.org and look at a couple of the re more recent studies we've done on the racial wealth divide, and, and, and uh, a couple articles that Deidre Kasante Muhammad and I have written sort of about how reparations could work uh, in the current political moment. Good, good. I'll include those in the description. If, any, if someone wanted to find your book, where would they find that at? Uh, you 
could also find it at inequality.org, uh, Born on Third Base. Uh, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty out there, so just Google Born on Third Base. And I have a new book called uh, Is Inequality in America Irreversible? Question mark. And uh, so both those books are pretty much out and about, and you can find those online. We're at inequality.org. Uh, any social media? Uh, I would also just yeah, look at our inequality.org Facebook page, um, and I'm at uh, at Chuck99 to 1 on Twitter, um, but inequality.org at Twitter as well. Perfect, perfect. Well, I learned a lot, and I appreciate you coming on today and talking about this important topic of wealth inequality. Thank you so much for having me on, Alonzo, and, and uh, it's a great it's a great podcast, and I'm glad you're getting the word out. Perfect, perfect. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for watching this video. If you enjoyed the content, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Stay up to date for more videos by clicking the bell notification icon and following our social media. For any of the people, groups, companies, or videos that were referenced in this video, don't forget to check the description and or the pinned comment section. The question lane, solving problems through the process of questions and answers.